coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show Podcast. School's out for summer. June looks hotter than normal. The discovery of the remains of 215 children on a former residential school site is no surprise. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Today at 1 p.m. we officially find out if schools are in or out. I only have one question. What is school? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Is it live or is it Memorax? Memorax today, folks. Kurt Mann's doing his own presentation while we speak. God, I can't do it live today. I think my presentation's going to come exactly at the same time. We'll just record it, Junior. That's all good. Uh, so there you have it. I thought maybe he'd fly down halfway through. Or maybe we should have just cut into his presentation. That might have been more fun than the actual uh, intro, don't you think? COVID-19 has taken a significant toll on everyone in Ontario. But our children have been impacted more than most. The pandemic has disrupted their lives. It's taken away their ability to go to school, to see friends, to connect with each other. Last week, I wrote to the public health, medical and education experts asking for their opinion on the best path forward. And it's no secret that some of them said kids should be back in school on a regional basis for the last couple of weeks of school. But here's what the experts couldn't say. They couldn't tell us that returning to in-class learning before more students and teachers are vaccinated won't lead to thousands and thousands of new cases. In fact, we've seen clearly in the modeling from Dr. Brown that returning kids and teachers back to school before they're vaccinated will lead to thousands of new cases. The experts couldn't tell us that it wouldn't risk spreading dangerous variants and avoid us from moving to other stages. It won't risk the health of our kids. Well, no one wants kids back in school more than I do. As your premier, these aren't risks I'm willing to take. So today, I have to announce that schools will not be returning for in-class learning until the fall. There you have it. The schools will remain closed for the rest of the summer. Must admit, I am a bit surprised. I thought we'd go back on a regional basis. So the hot spots, uh, of course, staying closed, but uh, other areas opened up. But the uh, premier said that uh, the modeling shows that there will be more cases uh, and he does not want to see the case count turn around and head back up as a result of that, uh, of the school's opening and the kids going back to, uh, in class, uh, concerned of the variants and wants to have things fully functional, uh, by the fall. Outdoor activities and camps, they want open for the summer and don't want to jeopardize that. Uh, so there you go. Uh, although it did make an interesting point about uh, in-person graduation events that can be held outside, uh, they're certainly suggesting that uh, you can go ahead and try to plan that. Uh, June 14th, still the start of Stage 1 to open. However, if numbers continue to go down, we may see uh, that start uh, a little earlier than June 14th. That's heading into Stage 1. However... Uh, however, uh, at this point, uh, nothing has changed there. Uh, the stay-at-home order has lifted as of today. So, on the other hand, can we be surprised? Can we be surprised that the Premier is doing what he's doing, considering we had this exact same debate after Stage 1, after Stage 2, and now Stage 3, and many accusing the government of opening too early. Now, some of the same are saying uh, you should open up now. Uh, so it seems like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. The province uh, obviously not wanting to make the same mistake twice. 
and being accused of uh, reopening too soon. So the kids will stay in uh, on or will stay online learning until the end of the year. There will be no in-class learning this year. Uh, hopefully, everyone fully vaccinated and back in by September. Uh, fast and furious. The opposition uh, parties are sending out uh, their press releases as the premier is still talking. Will and I are chatting off air. They must have two sets of these press releases ready, uh, one for yay, one for nay, depending on whatever the decision is, in order to get them out this fast, literally, uh, while the press conference is winding up or still on. Uh, so, uh, y- you know, you have to wonder. We have these debates after the first wave, the second wave, and now the third wave. We had mayors asking last summer to open things up only to have them all shut down. It seems we're damned if we do, if we're damned if we don't. Will and I were wondering what the press release would say if the premier actually open the schools because now they're all complaining saying they're putting patios ahead of kids but what if he had opened the schools then would the press release say yay doug ford opened schools or would they say doug ford's opening schools without reducing the class size or improving ventilation or hiring more teachers i don't think so it's all negative. Uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, I guess if you've ticked off uh, both sides or at least half, uh, they say a politician is doing his job uh, or her job. We'll wait and find out how this all plays out. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, we love talking about space on the show. And, you know, when things get a little hairy down here, it's neat to go up there and just look around and see what's going on. Uh, but it looks like, uh, and we've heard of this before, space junk floating around. How does the International Space Station avoid all of that? Well, well, it seems that something dinged the Canada arm, too. Uh, the big Canadian-made uh, space robotic arm that's up there uh, that has provided some excellent shots and shots of it and, and uh, the like has been dinged by a piece of debris. Let's bring in Paul Delaney, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics, York University, and is with us now. Paul, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm indeed, Scott. Happy to be with you. So what happened here? It looks like a regular, uh, relatively small puncture. It is. Uh, about a half a centimeter, five millimeters or so hole is now uh, in the Canada Arm 2. It was detected all the way back actually on May 12th during a spacewalk. Uh, they were out there doing other things and when they're out, they look around just to make sure that everything's good. Like we walk around a car after we've been in a parking lot and they noticed this small hole. Uh, it was announced by the Canadian Space Agency last week on May 28th, I think it was, or thereabouts. But it happened, obviously, sometime prior to May 12th. As you indicated, it really shouldn't surprise us. There's a lot of stuff floating around, and it was just a matter of time before <laughs> something hit us. So this sounds like something the size of a small stone. Yes, correct. Uh, we, uh, we, we may never, well, we probably will never know exactly what it was unless it is actually buried in the Canada Arm. And I was about to say, maybe it's rattling around in the casing somewhere. <laughs> no indication from the astronauts who were looking at it. It looks more like, you know, uh, it, it, it hit the arm and then bounced off. And of right. course, if it made this uh, an, a big an impression, it was moving not in the same direction as the International Space Station, but coming at a different angle, and therefore the uh, closing velocity could have been quite significant, as in potentially thousands of kilometers an hour. Again, speculation. I haven't seen all of the dimensions. I don't know whether they've done the analysis. But there's a hole in the Canada arm, and it undoubtedly arose from space debris. So uh, they had no idea that they had been hit then. They just discovered this while looking around. Correct. It didn't hit any of the vital parts, so the Canada arm has continued to operate. It, I, I won't say it's completely cosmetic, but that's by and large what it is. It's, you know, it's hit a non-essential part of the arm. It's obviously made an impression. The astronauts were able to see it very easily and they have reported and taken images, but it has not caused any functionality issues as far as the Canada Arm is concerned. Now, what if it had missed the arm and hit the actual space station? (laughs) Therein lies the point. Uh, It could well have put a similar-sized hole, half a centimetre, in one of the pressurised modules. And while that wouldn't have been... Uh, you know, devastating. It certainly would have caused a lot of uh, uh, excitement, shall I say, on board. They would have had to have sealed off that area. They would have had to have gone and done a spacewalk on the outside to, uh, you know, cover the hole and then, you know, make sure it was a, a good solid seal. 
it's not big enough that it would have caused a catastrophic depressurization, but it sure as heck would have alarmed the heck out of the guys on board. So what happens to this now? You send the body work team out to patch it up, uh, how, or do they just leave it? <laughs> I think they'll just leave it. Uh, if it had been uh, closer to one of the active joints and therefore, you know, shall I say, bent metal was causing uh, an impediment to the operation, of the, they would have gone out and tried to do something about it. But from all the indications, it's a non-essential part of the Canada arm, so therefore it is purely cosmetic. And it's just serving as a, a wake-up call. Uh, you know, we, we track literally nearly a million pieces of small debris all the time to keep the station safe. This one snuck through under the radar. So, you know, it was pretty darn small, less than half a centimeter in size, and it's impossible to track every last piece of debris at that size scale. So is the space station, you know, although once new, getting a little beaten up now, getting a few dents in the parking lot? <laughs> Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, it's been in place over 20 years, and in that period of time, they've had to do, uh, on average, one avoidance maneuver every single year, and that's the stuff they've seen. As we've now found, you know, there's stuff that we don't necessarily hear about or or see hit the station until you actually go out and, and see a cosmetic defect. So, yeah, the outside of the station is definitely getting a little beat up. It's getting a little grimy. It, it sort of is rougher than it was before because there's a lot of really small sand-like granules yeah. that are abrading the uh, surface. So, yeah, it's it's not as young as it used to be, mate. It's showing its age. Uh, Paul Delaney with a space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics at York University. Seems some space junk has hit the Canada Arm, too, although nothing to be too worried about. Paul, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Take care. All right. Uh, as uh, the stay-at-home order ends today, uh, you can now go out into your backyard, if you'd like, and... <laughs> and uh, jump through the daisies and enjoy the sunshine. And apparently, it's going to be a hot month. Most of Ontario set to see well above average temperatures. So says Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News, and is with us now. Anthony, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I am doing well, yeah. And uh, you know what? It's been really nice lately. It's hard to believe that <laughs> last Friday was, was snow in the area, rain, yeah. just miserable. Yeah. And, and now we've turned this corner and... Uh, we're about to crank that uh, thermostat up uh, another to another level this weekend. You know, I remember that, Anthony. I remember looking outside, and, and, and I'm sitting here in my home office, and I'm hearing something, and it's like it's ice pellets hitting the window pane. And you're right. That was just a week ago. <laughs> yeah, the end of May. And uh, at Pearson Airport, it was actually the latest recorded snow on record. So uh, we go from one extreme to now uh, back to heat and increasing humidity and it's really going to be that combo that uh, has me concerned for for many residents coming up especially sunday and into early next week as we see uh, potentially record high temperatures so is this going to be the first weekend uh anthony where ontarians officially start complaining about how hot it is i guess this is the first one I, I think so. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's been a nice uh, couple of days without any weather complaints. So uh, yeah, that that's that's definitely coming. Uh, I know, and and for our bodies, we just we 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 like the heat, we crave it. But sometimes when it happens too quick, uh, you just have trouble trouble adapting, and and that's something that I think is going to occur when when we have highs thirty three, thirty four, per, perhaps even thirty five degrees uh, in the coming days. And as you mentioned, uh, it looks like it's going to be a humid month as well, with humid X factors uh, being a concern. Yeah, I think so, especially the first half. Right now, the first half of June is, is looking hotter than the second half, but still above normal temperatures. So we have a warm month overall. It has been very dry since uh, the start of spring may anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of, of our average rainfall so there's a lot of brown lawns out there there's a lot of farmers starting to to take note uh we're going to get a soaker looks like some rain coming in here tonight early tomorrow and what that's going to do is that's going to raise the ground humidity levels and then set the stage for what i think uh, is going to be this heat wave this weekend so once we start to get into a situation where we're seeing uh, the humidity go up and such, uh, you talked about rain coming in tonight. What about pop-up showers and severe thunderstorms as a result of this weather? Yeah, that, that's always a possibility. I, I definitely see that perhaps uh, tomorrow afternoon, maybe again on Friday. But what happens after that, uh, for a few days at least, the ridge is, is right overhead. So there's a lot of sinking air, and it's going to be tough 
to get any organized thunderstorm. So it's going to be just hot, <laughs> humid uh, until Monday or Tuesday. And then I think we're going to get into to uh, your more typical unstable afternoon lake breeze thunderstorms that, that we all know and, and some of us love. I love. <laughs> so are, is it safe to say now, Anthony, that unofficially summer is here? Or do you see us dipping back into cooler temperatures before uh, the season actually arrives? No, I, I think it's it's here to stay. So uh, for anybody who's maybe been concerned about their garden, that that's all a thing of the past. It is uh, here to stay. And, and you know what? Um, even as we get into July and August, looking ahead further, uh, I think temperatures are going to be close to seasonal, perhaps even a little bit above but uh, the first half of June is what I'm really looking at for, for those very hot temperatures. And you only have to look as far as uh, Winnipeg on Friday. They have a shot at hitting 40 degrees Celsius. So this is something that doesn't happen too often, and, and it's on the way this weekend. And obviously throughout the month uh, after the rain uh, that you predict tonight that uh, it will be a dry month for us. I, I think so, yeah. One of the things, uh, when you have dry ground and you have these rainfall deficits, river levels are down across the province, uh, it becomes tougher. You, you don't have the same evaporation in the afternoon. So when they say desert leads to more desert, we're not quite at that extreme, but when you have dry spring weather, it tends to lead to perhaps drier conditions into June and maybe beyond. So, uh, yeah, below normal rainfall is what we're looking at. So that might help the uh, mosquito situation, will it? Yeah, it's been a pretty good, pretty good time so far. I'm even hearing uh, for those that have cottages up north, the black flies were very bad when we had that warm May spell, but now they've they've kind of disappeared. So perhaps uh, a pretty good bug year for for us humans. All right, give us the weather forecast heading into the weekend, Anthony. Then we'll let you go. All right, so we have this rain. It arrives late tonight, tomorrow morning. You'll need that umbrella afternoon, perhaps a pop-up thunderstorm. Friday, same type thing, still not too hot. Saturday, that's when we start our 30-degree stretch, and it could be six or seven days in a row, peaking on Monday, where that high could be close to 35 degrees with a humidex near 40. All right, Anthony Farnell with us, Chief Meteorologist for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on all of this. Anthony, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me on. Take care. It is 241 uh, sunscreen. Will there be a shortage of sunscreen uh, when we get warm weather at the end of a pandemic? Will there be a run on sunscreen like there was toilet paper and lumber? Sunscreen's gone through the roof now. we got all this summer weather coming. Uh, hey, it's good news. What other is there another way to look at what's happening in, uh, in our country right now than to think, well, at least we're going to get a great weekend weather-wise. What more can you ask for? Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Canadians are still coming to grips with the news that the remains of 215 children lay beneath the grounds of a former Kamloops residential school that were discovered after earth-penetrating radar was used to confirm what many in the community had already known or expected. Now the big question is, what happens next? There is no way this can be glossed over and an apology given by the Prime Minister of the day. There must be a thorough investigation into who these kids were and what happened to them. Questions like, if the remains of 215 kids are in Kamloops, how many are there in similar unmarked graves across the country where there were more than 130 residential schools? Who are these kids? What are their names? How did they die? Where are the documents identifying them and their family history? Should they all be exhumed and examined for cause of death? Is this not a crime scene? Or is it okay to bury students in the schoolyard? This not only involves truth and reconciliation with the indigenous community, what about criminality? Are we supposed to believe that all of these children simply passed away without anyone knowing? Canadians want answers. End change. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sadly, this is not an exception or an isolated incident. We're not going to hide from that. We have to acknowledge the truth. Residential schools were a reality, a tragedy that existed here in our country. 
and we have to own up to it. The Liberal government can't, on one hand, grieve this horrible tragedy, this horrible loss, while they are still taking Indigenous kids to court, while they're still taking survivors of residential schools to court. Those kids, like, those are somebody's kids, and it's devastating. It doesn't end. The residential school is not ending. And when people keep telling us, get over it, how can we get over something we lived? Like, I lived, my childhood was here. You can't get over it. Yeah, counseling, but it comes back. There you have it. Uh, that's Floral Royale, a uh, residential school survivor you heard for, uh, from last. And then prior to that, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, there have been uh, lots of calls to um, at least uh, find out what this situation is and, and the depth of the situation. And as far as if there's 215 uh, children that are buried on the site of the former Kamloops school, how many more? on various sites uh, throughout the the, uh, the country, well more than 130 residential schools across the country. Uh, is this just the tip of the iceberg? Um, the, the Prime Minister fell short of, of, uh, of, an, of any sort of announcement on whether that will be looked into uh, or not. Um, and, and where this discussion goes moving forward, we're all disgusted. We're all, we are, we're all feeling that pain. But the, the big question is what happens now? What happens, uh, moving forward on all of this? And, and, and where's the restitution? What happens to these bodies that are, that are lying in these schools? And, you know, a lot of the country is, is reacting with shock today, including myself and, 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 and thinking, how the heck can this happen? Well, this information is available. It was available, um, but but not getting, obviously, the attention that it is now. Let's bring in Dr. Patricia Doyle-Bedwell, Native Studies Instructor with Dalhousie University, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Where thank does this helpful. discussion go from here? Well, I think the discussion has to go to actual action by the federal government and by the Catholic Church. They have to acknowledge what happened. They have to take responsibility for what happened. They have to support an investigation. And as you said, the other 130 residential schools to see if there are more graves to be found. And they have to stop taking us to court over everything. They, they take us to court for, you know, fishing rights. They take us to court for uh, of the indigenous kids. And the Black Sox has been fighting them in court for 14 years. The residential school survivors are still fighting them in court. So any concrete action has to take into account responsibility for what happened in Kamloops and other schools, and they have to stop fighting us in court, and they have to make restitution. Um, we're hearing that this information that is now coming out is not new. It's been suspected by the communities for years. Um, right. What do we know? There was an interesting article in the National Post that government was aware that all of these schools had had graveyards or or yeah. or uh, marked unmarked graves in them. So this is nothing new. No, it's nothing new. We knew about this. I mean, if anybody had read the. Truth and Reconciliation Report, when it came out in 2015, they would have known that there were um, at least 4,000 kids that were, um, that they know died, but then, you know, they think that it's even more than that. It could be up to 10,000 kids in unmarked graves across this country, and, you know, the survivors have been talking about this forever. Um and if you look at just official government documents, um, research, the RCAP report that came out in 1995 did research on residential schools and listened to survivors' stories. And then the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report came out, and they had gone across the country talking to survivors and uh, doing extensive research on government documents and records. So 
this is nothing new. We have known about this. And the calls to action uh, under the Truth and Reconciliation Commission still need to be implemented. So that's another thing that Justin has to think about, about how to implement those calls to action and support this investigation, because this is a crime against humanity, and it's genocide. And they have to take responsibility, and they have to support our investigations into the into the other residential schools to see what's, what has happened. As we were saying, you know, there's there's record government record of this dating yeah. back uh, over a hundred years. Why is this coming out now with this case? Why why is the story of Kamloops coming out now? I mean, obviously they've done ground penetrating radar and actually right. found uh, these sites, but is that what it takes to get the public's attention on this? I think so. Obviously, yes, because the government, I mean, sorry, the the public's attention is now focused on these 215 kids. They did ground penetrating radar. They found proof of it. So it's not just dusty government documents that have Mm. indicated that children died in the schools or it's an actual forensic investigation that has confirmed this. And not that the other facts weren't confirmed. I just, and I, I've been thinking about that myself, you know, like just the TRC report, the, um, you know, the uh, common experience payments that were paid to residential school survivors, the RCAP report. There's been lots of research done by scholars on residential schools, but this has hit a nerve in people. And I fear that, I know, I, I have a feeling that this is just the tip of the iceberg. And all of us have to come together and make sure that the government and the Catholic Church take action. I think it's re- I think one of the things that really hit people was the when they said in the article that one of the bodies they found was of a three year old kid. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I think people look at their own kids and then say, "Oh my gosh!" Like, you know, I know I've talked to some people where they've said, "I've looked at my own kids and I can't imagine." This happening to my own kids and so they've really taken it to heart and really um and i just hope what i hope that they've taken it to heart that they move forward and in and create pressure on the government and on the catholic church to take responsibility and what should funding needed to get this investigated so what should be done here, Patricia? What should what should happen to the and and obviously right now we only know of the two hundred and fifteen uh, and, and yeah you'd be very naive to think that there aren't more and and and, and that every school property should be checked for this. Uh, it certainly yeah. seems in government records that this is common knowledge. But what should happen to the the remains of these two hundred and fifteen kids? Should should though did they be exhumed and identified? Uh, what about family records? Their names, who they are, um, the cause of death, uh, yeah. or, or should this will this be left as a grave of those children? Well, I think my in my opinion, um, this is only my opinion. As much as I hate the thought of those kids' bones being exhumed. I think we need to know what happened to them. And that is certainly one way. And we could do, they can do wonderful things now with DNA and forensic analysis, and they could figure out how these kids died and who they belong to. And I think that that's really important um, for the families. Now, I would say that it's up to the families to make that decision um, if they want to have that happen to this community if they want to have that happen and that's going to cost a lot of money and if the community chooses to have that happen then the government the federal government has to make sure that the funding is available to make that happen if they so choose to do so i know that if it was one of my family members buried there i would want to know what happened and i would want i would give them permission to exhume the bodies, but, you know, it's up to the community. Um, there's a lot of investigation that needs to happen because this could be possibly, I mean, a crime. It could be murder. It 
could be manslaughter. It could be that. That was my next point, Patricia, is that, um, you you know, obviously this is an issue of the indigenous community and and Canadians and, and truth and reconciliation and all of that. But what about the criminality of this? Yeah, there's um, a crime here. And, and how do we investigate that? Well, I think that we have, you know, we have a lot of, um, we were just talking about this yesterday, there are um, people that we have in our communities who are RCMP officers, who are lawyers, who are scientists. We could create... Um, a group of process to, and then hire experts as well um, to find out what happened. Because, you know, the question you know that goes through my mind all the time is like, these kids didn't just drop dead, okay? Yeah. Something happened to them. And we need to know if there was actually a crime involved here. And then the people that were responsible for the crime, they need to be, and maybe they're not even alive anymore, I don't know, but the Catholic Church has to take responsibility because they ran the school. The federal government has to take responsibility because they're the ones that funded the schools and created schools. So we need to know what crimes were committed. And this is definitely, you know, as uh, Senator Justice Sinclair said in the TRC report, that this is genocide. And if it has happened, I know St. Anne's Residential School, you know, in Ontario, they had an electric chair in the basement. Like, what else happened? We know in um, Alberta that there were residential schools that um, conducted medical experiments on the kids that were in residential school. So that all of this has happened. We know that it's happened, but we need to have, I think, before, I don't know, I think the Catholic Church and the federal government will need some kind of, you know, intensive forensic evidence of crimes being committed be made before they'll even take responsibility. Uh, obviously, we've talked about how um, the Catholic Church was responsible for the majority of these other churches that were yeah. have since stepped up and, 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 and uh, apologized right. and such and That's at right. least acknowledged this. The Catholic Church has yet to do that. Um, right. That being said, uh, will this situation with the discovery of these 215 remains, do you... Do you see that changing that? Because up until now, uh, the Canadian government has certainly started, and Canadians, I think, are acknowledging this. But yeah. this is a responsibility that is now being put squarely on the shoulders of Canadians, and, and they don't seem to be anywhere in sight, meaning the Catholic Church. I know, and there's been a lot of um, social media commentary on, you know, like the Canadian Conference of Bishops, Catholic Conference of Bishops yesterday, released a statement about how tragic this is. This is very tragic, but they have to step up and take responsibility. They have to apologize. You know, I think part of what they're scared of is just being on the hook for, like, millions of dollars in compensation. Yeah, it sounds like and, a restitution issue. Yes, and so I know that even in um, during the um, time that the courts were dealing with the common experience payment uh the Catholic Church had separated themselves into little, I want to little corporations, I guess, like individual corporations, so that if you were going to sue the Catholic Church, you couldn't sue the whole church. You had right. to sue that particular parish. And there's been some talk that they shut down their archives and wouldn't let people go in to investigate anything to do with residential schools. So they have not stepped up. They have to step up and they have to take responsibility. And if it costs them millions of dollars in restitution, so be it. They have a lot of money. So um, know, even hope from what I understand, too, from what I understand, too, it, it's the records are scant and, and incomplete in all of this. Yeah. And and I understand that uh, the Catholic Church still retains a lot of these records, considering yeah. there might be the possibility of criminality here, uh, and and whether you want to take responsibility for it or not, do, do you think there's any legal recourse for Canada to get access to at least get access to these records and find out who's where and what? I think there is ways to get legal access to these records. I mean, I know that the St. Anne's Residential School there were records by the Ontario Police 
investigating the crimes that occurred there, and uh, they're still fighting in court for access to those records. So it could certainly be an option. Um, the Catholic Church in, say, in Halifax, for instance, there's an archdiocese here, and they have archives, and they have to open them up. because, And if we have to go to court to get them, then we go to court to get them. And um, they have to... I mean, I, as someone who was brought up Catholic and somebody who uh, went to Catholic school for 13 years, um, you know, this whole situation has been so horrific, and their lack of re- taking responsibility has really been horrific. They, I don't know why. I don't know. I think it's about the money. I think they have to open up. They, if they want to incorporate true reconciliation in government and in the churches with Indigenous people. As they say, they're Indigenous partners. They're going to have to do something positive and open their records and take responsibility. I can't see reconciliation moving forward in any other way except to get the whole truth out. And there's been a lot of research... Like I said, you know, with RCAP and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the stories that our elders and our parents have told us over the years, and there's information out there, they're holding on to it, they need to open it up. And how are they going to have true reconciliation? If, unless, you know, the federal government has done the same thing, too, by not releasing records. So, what 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 should be the... What should be the Prime Minister's response here, Doctor? Because many would think that, man, if this has been discovered, the first reaction would be, well, we got to figure out how many more there are. But there was no commitment to that. Is the argument there, and I'm playing devil's advocate here, is the argument on their side, well, we know the graves are there, there's no reason to go looking for them? Why would you not automatically just say, well, we got to go look at every other site? Well, I think that... um you know, with all the information that's been released about residential schools and research that's been done over the last 30 years, you know, the government has done the most minimum amount of uh, action in dealing with it. It's almost like they they want to say, well, this has happened in the past. and Yeah, know, it's all, it's everybody. There. There's nobody you can point fingers at. It's everybody right. from here all the way you back. Know, some yeah. of the people, you know, like if you're going to investigate a crime that happened 40 years ago, you know, you have to think about other witnesses. What happened? Are these people still alive? What, you know, we could just move on and, you know, say, oh, this is a horrible thing that happened. And, you know, and maybe they could support some small efforts to investigate other schools. But there's this idea from the guy, go- I think, from the government perspective that they just want this to go away. <laughs> and every time well, something I, happens... Yeah. It, yeah. it just creates more trauma. It creates more um, need for action. And I think the government, I, I, you know, I, I always say, you know, dear Prime Minister, you know, crying is great, but you've got to have action. And we've got to um, bring justice to these kids. Like if it was anybody else, there would be, you know, we wouldn't say, oh, well, you know, that happened like 50 years ago. We're not going to bother investigating it if they found a mass grave somewhere they would be investigating it just whether it's like what happened in rwanda or in other countries where chile or whatever they would be investigating it and we have to give the same honor and respect to those kids and investigate it they can't ignore this this isn't going to go away Ever. Dr. Patricia Doyle Boyle, uh, you will absolutely. Doyle. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, sorry, I, I meant I was okay. interrupted my sentence here. Obviously, if there's this one situation and there's over 130 schools, you have to wonder, uh, yeah. you know, this this is just really the tip of the iceberg. You'd have to be insane to think otherwise. Dr. Patricia Doyle Bedwell with us, Native Studies instructor with Dalhousie University. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much Thank appreciated. You. Be well. Thank you for asking me, and thank you for your questions, and you be well, too. Take care. We'll chat again. Uh, The headline in the National Post, the graves were never a secret. Why so many residential school cemeteries remain unmarked.
Uh, Indian Affairs refused to ship ch- uh, to ship home children's bodies because of the cost. It follows that most were buried on or near the school grounds as a result of this. I'm going to read you the first portion of this article as we wait for uh, the Premier to come up and make an announcement in regard to schools and such. We'll keep an eye on that and go to it live. Uh, but I wanted to pass along this, and, and, and again, to what I just said and, and what we decide to pay attention to and what we don't. Uh, this week has yielded a near-unprecedented tide of national horror at the news out of Kamloops that a ground radar survey has uncovered evidence of up to 215 unmarked graves of children who died while attending uh, the Kamloops Indian Residential School. While Canadians have used the words such as shock and disbelief to describe the discovery of the 215 unmarked graves of children who died while attending the school, the truth is much more telling. It was never a secret that the sites of the Indian Residential Schools abounded with the graves of dead children. Communities and survivors knew the bodies were there, as did any investigation or government commission that bothered to ask. If Canadians are only now discovering the deadly legacy of Indian residential schools, it's not due to any lack of available evidence. Uh, This week, a myriad of Indigenous voices all mourned the Kamloops, B.C. discovery, but added that this isn't unexpected or unusual. Uh, it's a, it, uh, it is a great open secret that our children lie on the properties of the former schools, said an Indigenous member of the Ontario Legislature. Uh, and executive director of the National Association of Friendship Centers. Uh, The discovery is a shock to us all, but unfortunately not a surprise to many. Uh, From the earliest days of the Indian residential school system, the federal government openly acknowledged high rates of student mortality. An official 1907 report into the Manitoba uh, Manitoba Indian Reserve Schools, uh, or Indian Residential Schools, I'm sorry, uh, even included charts cataloging pupils as either good, sick, or dead. Uh, There was never an official policy on how to handle the dead from Indian residential schools, but because the Department of Indian Affairs refused to ship home the bodies of children for cost reasons, it follows that most were buried on or near school grounds. Uh, This was confirmed by the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, which was released in 2015. Uh, Many, if not most, of the several thousand children who died in residential schools are likely to be buried in unmarked or untended graves, it wrote, uh, subjected to institutionalized child neglect in life, and they have been dishonored in death. So uh, how does that make you feel? Now that, you know, like myself, uh, yeah, you know, you hear the stories, you hear this, you hear that. But, you know, as I mentioned yesterday, none of us of my generation were ever taught any of this. And, you know, what I have learned probably my generation in the last 10 years is probably more than they've learned in their lifetime about this sort of uh, of issue. Um, and again, we have to be very, very careful as we move forward with this issue uh, that we don't stand up and, and, and ceremonially um, uh, apologize and, and all of that sort of stuff and, and, and not change anything. If this isn't confirmation of the struggle that our indigenous uh, communities have had to endure, I don't know what is. And to me... To me, this, and this is just my personal opinion, and maybe some will be upset with the parallel I'm about to draw, but to me, this seems to be one of those moments, very like, very much like the moment uh, when we all viewed the 9-minute and 29-second video of George Floyd. We remember the impact that that had on not only America, but the world. And everybody talked about what the right thing to do was. Well, here we are. Same sort of situation. Are we going to do the right thing? Or are we just going to shove this off? And this isn't, you know, Trudeau. This isn't Harper. This isn't the Trudeau before the whoever, whoever. This is everybody. This is everybody. 
So, again, uh, are we going to sit here like a bunch of smug Canadians and look at the Americans and go, they should get their act together, while we sit here red-faced and can't even look in the mirror and not even be aware of something that was made public back in 2015 in the Truth and Reconciliation Report? Guilty. Same here. Let's bring in Ken Coates, Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the McDonald laurier Institute and is with us now. Ken, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Uh, good to be with you today. Uh, we're hearing, you know, quotes, shocked, horrified, disgusted, what have you. Um, but this is not new. Uh, are you surprised Canadians are having the reaction they are now? Well, surprised and, and, and the a little bit disappointed. I certainly understand the Indigenous response. This is a bitter and, and horrible memory for them. Um, and of course, it's not just occurring at Kamloops. We know this kind of thing happened in schools all across Canada. There's 120 of them from coast to coast and way up into the north. So the Indigenous, indigenous response, I understand. Um, the non-Indigenous response has kind of become fairly commonplace, a very quick reaction to, to a bad news story. But it also demonstrates that people weren't paying attention for the last 15 to 20 years. Um, the mm-hmm. stories of what happened in residential school have become very, very well known over a period of time. We were not surprised. We knew there were thousands of Indigenous people who'd been, uh, who died, Indigenous children who died in these schools. So, so I, I'm a little bit, you know, sort of saddened, I guess, by people who jump onto the cause. Um, I understand they're being upset. The, the sort of the graphic sort of emotional impact of, thinking about those children being buried without uh, without sort of proper memorials and things of that sort, without their parents necessarily knowing. I can understand the reaction, but it's why were you not more concerned about this five years ago? And have you not been listening to Indigenous people who've been talking about this out loud for, for decades? You know, and, and so I think there's a, a response to the non-Aboriginal reaction that I think is a little bit uh, less happy about it. Uh, clearly, we weren't paying attention, I, I guess is the short answer here. Um, it, it took these communities and their own, or this community and their own investigation in order to do this ground penetrating uh, radar work that allowed this to become as detailed as it has. Is that the situation that's different now? I mean, uh, that's what it took to get this onto the front page, per se? I, I, I think so, and I think the scale of it. You know, if if they had identified uh, one grave or two graves, um, some of these graves actually would have had um, a headboard at the time when the when the child died, because many of these deaths occurred in the 1905 and 1920 and 1930, so been there for a long time. And and the the wooden the wooden sort of markers actually have disappeared sort of over time. So had it been one or two graves, it would have been a small story. Um, the discovery, the realization that several hundred young children basically handed over to the state to be to be to be looked after and cared for and educated, obviously dying under their care, um, and then sort of being sort of summarily dismissed. You know, um, you just wouldn't imagine this. And you start in your own head. I, I know I've been certainly doing this, thinking of, of 215 horrifying stories. You know, yeah. it isn't just the kid who died. It's the other kids who lived, who saw their friend, you know, sort of getting sick with influenza, tuberculosis, or some other disease, most of them, and then and then dying, and then having to be taken out and buried in the, the backyard of the school. Um, you know, the impact of this is not small. And I think the scale of what happened in Kamloops, the discovery of 215, is, is the kind of thing that really does get the nation's attention. So 215 bodies discovered in 120 different school sites wouldn't get the same reaction to this image that we have in our mind of a school that was supposed to care for the kids and ended up seeing them die under their under their stewardship how would they have died is it as you said lots of disease especially in those early years is it that or is it abuse so we we know there were horrible cases of abuse all cases of abuse are horrible we know there were deaths that happened we had children who died because they tried to run away from the school and and died and froze to death on the on the prairie or froze to death in the in in, in Northlands and things of that sort. The vast majority of them died from from illness. Um, tuberculosis was rampant in Indigenous societies until the 1950s and 1960s. Children were brought out of their homes, brought into a school system that was actually an incubator for further illness. 
So if you bring in five kids who have TB and you put them in a crowded sort of residential setting with 100 kids, the disease actually spread. Um, you have you know, the Spanish flu of, of 1918, 1919, other illnesses that broke out, measles, mumps, meningitis, things of that sort. Uh, without a, the kind of health care that we have now and the, the pharmacies and medications and stuff that we have now. Um, and so death rates were higher for all people. They were about five to six times higher for residential school uh, children. Um, and they, but they died in, in largely because of these illnesses. Um, and oftentimes without their parents uh, having a chance to say goodbye to them, being there for the funerals, or even necessarily hearing about it for quite some time. What should happen, and obviously there's more of these residential schools, over 130, so many are predicting that there's there's more of this situation to be found. That being said, with this Kamloops uh, school and such, what should happen next here? What should happen uh, to this site? What should happen uh, to these remains? Uh, how does this move forward? So I think the handling of the remains very much should be in the hands of Indigenous communities. Uh, these are their treasures and their responsibilities. They have a spiritual and cultural responsibility, and we should support them in, in exercising that. I, I hope that in appropriate places there are memorials uh, where we are actually have something physical that sort of stands and maybe even goes as far as have the children's names on them. So we can actually identify this not as remains, which is a horrible phrase, but 215 young children with names and with families and, and with communities. Um, I worry that in this conversation that we, we focus exclusively on residential schools, which were obviously extremely disruptive and extremely upsetting for the children and their families and all those sorts of things that had so many people die. But we should also be asking the questions of, so, so how, how much better are things now? And, and that we've now had, you know, 50 years of intensive government involvement, 70 years actually going back to the end of World War II. Um, and circumstances in Indigenous communities are, are still very harsh. Some are doing much better, but many are doing worse. And we have huge problems with uh, teenage suicide, epidemic suicides, and, and, and other sort of issues of poverty and what have you. And, and I, I look at this situation with Kamloops and think this is one of these things where it's kind of a, a, a bracing slap in our own face. You know, for crying out loud, Canada, wake up. Our policies did not work in 1910. They did not work in 1930, and they're not working in 2021. And if we want to honor these children and honor the experience of the residential school children in general, you know, surely we can actually figure out how to do this so much better and get away from the financially driven incrementalism that sort of characterizes Canadian Indigenous policy. Should they not be at least identified a uh, cause of death? Um, what about the Catholic Church's responsibility in this? And, and they even hold a lot of the documentation still, I understand. So, so you asked a bunch of very important questions. Um, yes, in fact, we should make every effort we can to identify them. That'll be, uh, be quite difficult uh, but, and, and time-consuming. And some Indigenous communities might wonder if, if that's the right way to, to spend money, but that's very much up to their call. I think the Catholic Church has a reckoning on its hands about this. Um, they're going to have to stand up and sort of take uh, some uh, greater responsibility. Um, not, not to, nobody's necessarily accusing them of murder. Some people do use that language. Um, but of, of neglect, neglect of the children, neglect of their families, neglect of their, their, their sort of human responsibilities uh, to these individuals and to their, to their families and communities. Um, and the response from the Catholic Church so far has been very very tepid at best. They was, oh, we're sorry it happened, but, but no, we're not going to stand up and take that much responsibility for it. Um, that's the kind of response that just infuriates not, not just Indigenous people, but non-Indigenous people who, who are, are looking for a way to reconcile ourselves with what happened in the past. And, and honesty is part of reconciliation, coming forward and saying, we did run those schools. Um, and Catholics ran some, Anglicans ran some, Protestants ran others. We did run those schools. Children died under our care. We did not deal with the children with the dignity and responsibility we should have done. So we need that kind of, not just a mea culpa, but a serious reckoning of, of sort of what their decisions meant to the children, but also to their families and their communities. And, and I hope that that comes out of this process, although I, I won't hold my breath.
What about the records? Uh, and, and won't this discovery, even legally from a criminal standpoint, and, and again, whether you want to go there or not, that's up to the community, but um, you know, even from a record standpoint, will that not force the, the hand of the, of the Catholic Church? We need records here. There, there are a fair number of records. Um, we have, for example, a lot of records of attendance that show what children were there. Uh, in many instances, we actually know the, 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 even the dates and times when the children died. I mean, we have a fair amount of that information. Um, I would think that uh, making, providing access to those records would be a, an obvious uh, thing for the church to do. You know, we're not talking about something the church did yesterday, except holding on to the records make it, makes it something that they're doing today. And, mm. and you, you have to sort of, when you have a sore that's this hurtful and that causes this much pain to the indigenous children uh, and, and their families and communities, you know, you, you're, you're morally bound to try to get rid of it, to do everything you can to make things better. And, you know, by all means, let the records come, come out. Let, let good historians, professional historians, go through the material, look at it systematically, find out what actually happened and document it, um, and, and let the world know what happened. It was obviously horrible for the children, for their families, for their communities, for the schools, for the kids who survived. You know, when you talk to residential school survivors, yeah. survivors, many of them at, at young ages were seeing their friends die in these schools. Um, the, the, the impact of this is so much greater than, than just 215 children, which is horrific in its own. But, of course, there's several thousand more all across the country. We've only got a few seconds left, Ken. Is this a turning point, tipping point here for Canada? No. I really wish it was. I hope it was. I pray hmm. part of me prays that it becomes that kind of thing. Uh, we've had lots of these things in the past. We had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Yeah. We have testimonies for hundreds, for decades of people talking about the horrible things that happened. We know about reserves. We know about the Indian Act. We know about all the things that happened. Um, and we've known about these things for a long time. And and are we? What, what did we hear so far from the government of Canada? Well, you know, we're really sorry. We've heard that lots of times. Oh, we're going to put some money toward ground-proof ground radar. You know, a, a tipping point means that we finally, as a country and as a government, and this is a nonpartisan opera- comment. It's not about mm-hmm. liberals, conservatives, and NDP or anybody else. That as as a nation, we stand up and say we've done things fundamentally wrong, and maybe for the first time, we'll actually listen to Indigenous people and figure out a future that they that they help define for themselves and for all of us. Are we there yet? I hope so. But I'm not holding my breath again. I, I'm, I'm, I, we just been, we get a lot of virtue signaling at times like this, and I don't see it necessarily being very deep. Hmm. Ken Coates with a senior fellow, Aboriginal and Northern Canadian issues with the McDonald Laurie Institute. Ken, thank you for the insight. Be well. Do take care. CHML, I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com, as Dave has done. And he says, I think the Premier did the right thing. Lives depend on this decision. This is uh, in regard to keeping the schools closed. Uh, lives depend on this decision. All the Premier's points uh, were backed by logic and numbers. I was glad he chose the long term instead of the short term gratification. Politically, it would have been way more popular to open the schools the premier will take a hit for doing the right thing he is aware of that but ford governed with his conscience today i hope people will consider that find that fascinating i also find it fascinating that we're having the exact same debate today that we did after the first wave after the second wave uh and yet we're saying that it's the premier that took us into the third wave is it that or this debate that's been ongoing since the very first wave. Uh, I'm surprised that people are surprised things are remaining closed when this premier was constantly uh, accused of keeping things open or opening too soon. Uh, We remember the mayors of Halton all wanting to do this and opening uh, things up uh, last summer and then only to have everything shut down uh, simply because case counts uh, went through uh, the roof. Um, uh, Landback send us a uh, interesting point on the residential school discussion we were having earlier uh, this hour, and uh, our guest was talking about how the fact that they the the indigenous kids were in the residential school uh, that these sorts of diseases uh, just spread dramatically. Uh, and here's a quote from Duncan Campbell Scott. Uh, Scott addressed the issue in 1924 in one of the most chilling statements in Canadian history. 
quote, it is readily acknowledged that child, that Indian children lose their natural resistance to illness by habituating uh, so closely in residential schools and that they die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this does not justify a change in the policy of this department, which is geared towards a final solution of our Indian problem. Uh, there you have it. So, uh, again, interesting article in the National Post uh, today talking about how uh, everybody seems real surprised and everybody's stunned and everybody's disgusted and everybody's shocked, just as I was. But uh, this is well documented in 2015's Truth and Reconciliation Report, and it is something that uh, the community has known for generations. So we now have to ask our question, uh, ask the question to ourselves, do we ignore this the way we have for decades or do we finally look at the information that is at the end of our nose? Uh, tough decision for Canadians to make. It shouldn't be, but it certainly it has been for years. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. I just want to tell one last story.